Hi, I'm Glenn Harper, CPA and owner of Harper & Company, CPAs Plus, and partner in Sula Consulting. In each episode, my co-host, Julie Smith, Harper & Company's practice manager and partner in Sula Consulting, and I will interview a different guest about their entrepreneurial journey. The podcast features interviews with business owners, aka entrepreneurs, who bring intriguing and entertaining clarity to the entire entrepreneurial journey, giving others confidence to build their business. Our goal is to provide actionable value to you, the entrepreneur, to help you do business or build a business. Every entrepreneur deserves to enjoy the journey. Learning from others offers valuable insight and inspiration. We want to provide insight on the why, the how, the shortcuts, and the value add that many entrepreneurs wish they would have had identified at the onset of their journey. Sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of an Empowering Entrepreneurs podcast. I'm Glenn Harper. I'm Julie Smith. What's going on, Julie? You know, the kids are back in school, so I feel like I have a little bit of routine schedule and time back. I'm telling you, that's a that's a big thing. when they, they uh That summertime is brutal. I don't know how parents do it. I don't um, know. Flashbacks for me. One, one day at a time. That's good. How's coffee looking this morning? You went to Sheets, eh? Yeah, I'm back on the sheets. You're back on Starbucks. Uh, you know, that's, that's, it's go with, go with what I know. Uh -huh. Well, I know. Well, we have got a really special guest today. I'd like to introduce to Michael Begg, a fellow entrepreneur who is the co-founder and CEO of AMZ Advisors, a company that can show you how to grow online sales via the uh, Amazon platform, as well as co-founder of GoAdvance, which is more of an end-to-end e-commerce solution to crack the Latin American market. But wait, there's more. He also is the co-founder of Magnified that provides remote sales teams for entrepreneurs that they might want to use instead of hiring themselves. They get to do it uh, with a remote team. Um, he's got an intensity about him that's contagious, and uh, if Sears would have listened to him back in the day, they'd probably still be a dominant player in the retail space. Thanks, Mike, for being on our show. Thank you for that intro, Glenn, and, and thank you both for having me here today. You you betcha. Well, you know, you kind of uh, we like I like to stalk the guests a little bit just to find some obscure facts about them and useless trivia knowledge. And uh, I had you as uh, you're originally from Connecticut, correct? Yes, I am. Okay. I'm originally from uh, just outside of New Haven. Gotcha. Are you sweating, wondering what he found on you? Uh, I'm wondering now. <laughs> I don't know how far back he went. Well, you know, I it's I can't find any old fraternity pictures of yourself enjoying life or anything. There's just nothing out there. You're like a like a black box. How's that happen? Uh, thankfully, uh, I don't know. My, <laughs> my my lacrosse photos are out there somewhere. So uh, hopefully. Those uh, didn't get found, but we'll see. We did <laughs> find some in the you in a tank top, which was very awesome. It was back in the day, um, and I was just curious. You know, when you were in Connecticut, and I think uh, where you were where you were living, did, did you ever do Mr. Frosty's ice cream shop? Is that something you would go to? No, I don't. I don't know Mr. Oh, Frosty's. Man, that? It seemed like it was right down the street, right in the in your little town. I what's the uh, what's the name? Oh, of the town in Norwalk. I know what place yeah. you're talking about. Yes, yeah, I know. I, I don't really eat ice cream, but I know the place you're talking about. Well, that's that's too bad. My ice cream's awesome. You just killed all his stalking and his map skills got, right now. I, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. Well, again, we uh, we love having uh, guests on here, and and we're trying to figure out. We just try to help empower entrepreneurs to understand it's a it's a lonely journey. It's an epiphany when you do it. It's nobody there's to help, and it's really, really freaking hard. And and why do people choose it to do it? How does that happen? And again, you've got uh, a little bit of a storied past here of where, how you ended up where you are. And I, you know what, we're going to get into that of how you made the choice to be an entrepreneur. But you know, a lot of times it starts, you know, when you grow up. Did you have some sort of mentor somebody that said, man, that guy's self-employed or that girl's self-employed. I'd like to do that. Or was it just something you were just a hard worker, hustling guy? I don't think it was any one thing. Uh, I think there were a variety of things that I've kind of noticed throughout my young life that got me to, that kind of motivated me to go down the entrepreneurship path. One of them was uh, my grandparents were all entrepreneurs. They all had their own businesses. Uh, I think that was a big motivating factor, but ironically, my parents weren't, <laughs> they all had uh, careers. So, uh, I think that was one early influence I had. Another one was just growing up in Connecticut in general. Um, and the area I'm from is generally a pretty wealthy area. And because of that, you get exposure to a lot of people that are successful in business, successful in finance, investment banking, whatever it may be. And I think that also kind of motivated me a little bit more to learn how they got to those points and figure out you know, how I can do that for myself. Did your, uh, did your parents work in your grandpa and grandma's uh, business at all growing up? Is that how they got burnt out or do you know? 
I think my mom may have done uh, something with her dad's business. Um, he was, I mean, my parent, my mom's parents were both immigrants, so uh, they were kind of, you know, hustlers in, in their own way. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not sure. They, my mom got into nursing. Uh, she's still a nurse to this day. My dad worked in manufacturing, so uh, maybe some some spilled over because my dad's father had a manufacturing business, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure how they got to deciding that having a stable job, or, I guess, it's uh, just working funny. for someone else is the way to go. Yeah, it's funny because some people, they grow up with their parents or grandma doing it and they just love it. And other people are like, no freaking way. I, that work, you're working too hard for too little money. I don't want any part of it. So I was just wondering if that was a factor at all for, for your parents to get in or out. And then again, you got to skip and see that. You didn't probably have to go in there and be slave labor like you make all your kids do. But uh, you kind of missed out on that, I guess. Yeah, I didn't have that experience. But I think uh, another factor there is obviously, like I said, my mom's family, my mom's parents were immigrants. And I think that's kind of a big thing is, you know, going from a situation from one country to another. It's about creating stability, security. And I think maybe they pushed her more down that route. But I personally did not you know, have any exposure to working in the businesses day to day. Yeah, it's probably in that genetic thing of, you know, you recognize when you when everybody immigrants here, it's, it's the opportunity that's here that's not everywhere else in the world. And if you're here, exactly. you want to take that opportunity and go with it. So that's that is probably in your genetics somehow. But the irony in that <laughs> is that he's not in the United States. I, uh, funny. Well, I think he cut <laughs> his teeth here. He probably cut his teeth here. Um, you know, when you are, uh, you know, it's funny how some people do the entrepreneurial path by the School of Hard Knocks and just have an idea and go with it. And other people, they go through some education and try to figure things out, gets a real job, and then they have the epiphany and do it. And and again, I, I can't, it is unconscionable how much schooling you went to. I mean, is there something wrong with you? Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, not only to go to Stony Brook and, and Long Island, which I, is that near the Gold Coast, the famed Gold Coast? Is that close to that? It's pretty close, yeah. And business management. Then you went to St. Joseph's for economics and international relations. What well, did you do, the Brooklyn or the Long Island branch? Uh, no, St. Joe's in Philly. In Philly, different oh, different. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. So you decided to get out of New York, out of New York and Connecticut, and go to Philly. Okay, and then you went to NYU for real estate and investment, and that was in Manhattan, correct? Yep, that was in Manhattan. So yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's anything wrong with me. <laughs> I like <laughs> learning. I think that's the good thing. Um, but I've always kind of prioritized, I don't know, trying to improve myself in the way, the best way that I can. Uh, I mean, some of those degrees came out of finding out what I liked and didn't like, and other ones came from necessity of like trying to change careers, kind of like the NYU side. But I think education can play a valuable role in, in improving in who we are and how we work. It's funny, like you say, growing up in Connecticut with all the investment banking and stuff, you kind of started on that track and then you had to like, wait a minute, I might want to do something different, which again is just always neat when people can recognize that they don't have to go into what they pick, right? You can always have options, right? And that's cool that you decide to do that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go. You can go for it. I was going to say, I definitely was kind of on that route. Um, and I went into consulting after college, so it's not like I wasn't far from it. But yeah, I, after working in the field, I realized, you know, this isn't it. I got to change. And then that kind of led me in other ways. But So before you made your trek on your college career, did you do anything growing up in regards to being an entrepreneur younger? Did you cut grass? Did you, you know, obviously didn't work at Mr. Frosty's, but anything else <laughs> that, that may have led you to where you are today? No, uh, I actually never really had, or at least I never really recognized it in myself that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, it was kind of more of an opportunity that I saw, which pushed me down the road. Um, and really just in general, not being happy with working for other people. Um, when I was growing up, I worked in restaurants. I, I worked as a bartender. I worked at a marina. Uh, the marina gave me some other visibility into the entrepreneurship world because everyone that has these huge yachts are all business owners. So that was like another exposure to it, but it wasn't me like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to go sell lemonade on the side of the road or something like that. Did you play lacrosse in, in college or you just do it in high school? Yep. I played in college. Right. So that college athlete thing really gives you that intensity that uh, a non-athlete just can't comprehend. So it's definitely, it definitely gave me a lot of skills uh, when it comes to staying motivated, putting in hard work, uh, trying when things aren't even going your way. Um, I, there's so many different ways that I use those skills, not 
even realizing it like subconsciously uh, today while I'm working. And it actually helps me to keep going when things are difficult, when things are hard. And in general, I think it's really helped me become a better entrepreneur and a better leader. I agree with that. What uh, position did you play? Did you play, play the same position? Yes, I played attack. Attack. There, that explains everything. <laughs> so here you are working for a living. You're at Sears, I think, at some point, and you're doing what you do, and you work in consulting. And then what What was the trigger that said, this is absolute BS? I have, I mean, you have to have an idea. You have to have a thing to say, well, I want to go do something. What What was that thing? And then what? how long did it take you to say, yeah, I, I'm ready to go do that? Well, it's interesting because I mentioned I was in consulting and I absolutely hated it. It was terrible. That's why I got into real estate uh, to begin with. And I actually really, really enjoyed real estate. I mean, I was doing massive projects at Sears. We spun off a $2.2 billion REIT. I was re doing redevelopment projects on my own. And this is me as a you know, 24, 25 year old. I was having crazy uh, responsibility that I would not have in my career anywhere else. And I really actually enjoyed working there. But I felt, I don't know, this underlying uh, pull that was like, I'm still not working for myself. I'm responsible to somebody else, I'm answerable to somebody else. And that kind of started myself and the two partners I have today in my in my main business uh, to start looking for other ways to start a business. I mean, real estate is really capital intensive. Uh, I would have had to raise a lot of money to actually make a living in real estate. And you know, I didn't personally have the money. I probably could have found people to put the money, but it's also hard to get people to give a bunch of money to a 24 and 25 year old. So uh, I started looking for other opportunities. Um, while I was at Sears, I was doing a lot of deals where I was selling off Sears assets. And one of them was at a mall, which was pretty much abandoned. Everything was closed except the Sears store. And we were selling it to Amazon. And that was kind of where I started thinking, well, why am I selling a store to Amazon? Amazon is the online platform. That's what they're known as. And as I started to do more research on the deal, I found out that they were trying to turn the mall into a fulfillment center or a distribution center to actually send product to consumers. And that kind of got me like, well, that's really interesting. Like that's a huge amount of square footage. That's a huge redevelopment plan. Like, why are they doing this? And then from there, it started evolving into, wow, e-commerce is growing fast wow, I can sell my own products on Amazon. And it just kind of started snowballing from there. When you say your own products, is these are just things that you think people would be interested in? Or did you have a, a line or a, something that you wanted to sell? I didn't have any, <laughs> I didn't have any particular plan. I, I wasn't imagining building anything uh, to start with. The first way I got into it was just retail arbitrage, which was you know, just going to Walmart, Target, buying whatever I could on clearance going to Amazon, flipping it, selling it for more there. Uh, ended up clearing about $10,000 from that. And then from there, uh, started researching on Amazon using a lot of three third-party tools to figure out what categories looked good uh, or looked like there was sales volume or potential to build a brand. And it was kind of interesting, but the first product we launched was actually, or the first brand we launched was an art supply brand, uh, which it's kind of crazy now that I think about it because our main competitor was Crayola, but this was back in 2014, 2015. And a lot of the big companies didn't know what they were doing on Amazon. So seeing the opportunity in the art supply uh, space, we got into it. We started importing products from China um, you know, with our own brand and everything on them and started selling them on the platform that way. So how do you go from, okay, I'm just going to sell some stuff to I'm going to go import something, put my own brand on it. Like walk, there's more to that, that than just doing it. Right. That's big. Yeah. It, it, it was definitely a lot of learning. Again, learning is one thing I always harp back on, um, this time, not formal education, but more from learning from people that were already doing it. So there were a lot of podcasts, a lot of, uh, Facebook groups, uh, a lot of other resources out there that we were using to learn how to do these steps. At one point we actually bought, uh, I say we, I'm talking about myself and my partners. We actually bought a course uh, to learn about how to do this stuff. And it kind of explained everything. So from there, the main, the first step was going to Alibaba and from Alibaba, trying to find suppliers in the category you're looking for and then getting them ordering samples from them. And once you get the samples and you, you know, they're trustworthy and the product's good, then placing an order. And I still remember the first day that the first order, I think it was like 500 units showed up and all these boxes. And we were like, 
oh, this is really happening. Like this is, this is here. And that was probably one of the coolest feelings, but we learned all of it just from free resources that were online. So how long did it take you from saying, okay, we're going to go, this is what we're going to do. We have to do the research. We have to find a supplier. We have to import all the things to that shows up on your doorstep and it's ready to go. It took about four months in total. Um, so, I mean, we, we moved pretty quick on it too, cause we didn't want to keep waiting. Uh, but I think we, I think we ordered samples from three or four suppliers. It took about two weeks to arrive from there. Once we knew that the product was good, we had, we placed the purchase order. Uh, I think it was like a month and a half to get the product built or, you know, the product manufactured. And then I think it was like two, three weeks, uh, for shipping, uh, by sea to us. And yeah, I mean, it was about four months in total for us to go from idea to actually having a product. How quickly did you sell the, that 500 first 500? Fast. We sold it way faster than we planned. Uh, and that was one of the crazy things about Amazon at the time was it was the competition level is not the same as it was today. We were, uh, I'm not going to say we were a first mover, but we were there early and we sold the first day that we put the product up, we sold 25 units and we were like, wow, all right, this is going to go quickly. And I think we sold through the first 500 in like two months. So, you know, I think half the crap I order is sitting on a shipping container somewhere. How, how did you get everything in? I mean, that seems like a very quick turnaround time to find the manufacturer, get it sampled and get, I mean, was it way different back then than it is now? I mean, could yeah. you do like today, if I wanted to start doing the same business, would I have a four month turnaround time? Yeah. I mean, it's different. Things yeah. are way different. And I think you could find manufacturers that are capable of doing it. It's definitely harder. Uh, and depending on the shipping you do, I mean, you could do air freight and air freight would get to you extremely quick, but the cost is really high. It really depends on how you want to manage it. I mean, like you said, sea freight right now, it's gotten better, but it's still kind of a mess with things being delayed and things taking longer times and the cost still being high. But um, yeah, I mean, it is possible to get started in probably four to six months. So you sell these 500 units. What do you do next? That was where we started to realize what our strengths and what our weaknesses were. Uh, our strengths were selling product and marketing product and positioning it and getting people to actually buy it. Our weaknesses were manufacturing, supply chain, inventory management. And that is kind of what made us realize that there's probably other things that we're better at or how we can leverage our strengths into a different business that we have today. Um, we reordered probably three or four times. And then we got to a point where we had an issue with our manufacturer. We went to go look for another manufacturer and this is China. So, you know, things are not always done very ethically. And one of the manufacturers we reached out to ripped off our product, uh, pretty much started manufacturing it ourselves. We couldn't order more product. And then they came into the category on Amazon and just pretty much blew us out. So, um, that was our, yeah, that was our own undoing. And, you know, when we were young, we didn't know what we were really doing in the manufacturing space. And it wasn't something that we had ever really considered could be a problem. So, uh, it was a tough learning lesson, but you know, it's a lesson that we, we, got and that has helped us to be more aware of what we share, what we make public, what we let other people know and what we have to keep more protected within our businesses. Did, did you put on a big review and say there's all toxic chemicals in this stuff? It's like make them shut down? <laughs> uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> okay, well, I'm saying that definitely is a choice, right? Uh, now, now we know what Glenn would have done. <laughs> no, I mean, like steal from me. That's just not cool. Well, you know, I think one thing that I think is uh, uh, very pointed that you said is that even back then this is what 14 that you're doing yeah. this all right 14 so, 15 yeah yeah so we're talking what is that i'm not a numbers guy seven eight years ago but you had a tremendous amount of free resources that you were able to go hunt and find and acquire and they laid it out for you right i think today there's even more resources right now you got to separate the fly poop from the you know from the pepper but still at some point you know there's resources out there. People think they have to invent it all themselves and figure that out, but there is shortcuts, right? And and how did you just say, look, I'm just going to go for this and see what this is? Why did you not want to go the, do the school of hard knocks? Um, You're just smarter than the average bear because most people try to know. figure it out, entrepreneurs, right? They don't they do the shortcut. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, for us, it was, for us, it was just a matter of, why not follow the example of someone that has already been successful in this or someone that already knows how to do it? And I think that's the way that I approach a lot of different things. Um, 
there are ways for us to learn how to do it ourselves. And there's plenty of mistakes that we've made in our current business that have taught us those you know, hard knock lessons. But there are other things where you can save yourself a lot of brain damage and you can literally just move ahead uh, like three, four years from where you would be if you had to figure this out all out on your own. And that's kind of what I prefer doing. Um, you know, if there's someone out there that has that experience, that knowledge, I would rather go find that person uh, and learn from them instead of having to create all these lessons for myself and, and all the problems that come with them. That is a great piece of advice for our listeners. Now, another thing that is interesting with you is that you kind of went out, you know, some people go out on their own, some people get partners, some people get associates, whatever that case, but it looks like you went out immediately with partners. You found what, two other people or however X amount, it doesn't matter, that had like-minded about you and you all probably had different strengths and weaknesses that you guys kind of hooked up like that. I mean, did everybody say, okay, we're all quitting to tomorrow and we're starting this thing? Or did you guys say, you know, we'll kind of test it with our toes? How, how did you make that transition? Because that's hard to get one person to move, let alone some partners to move. That's That's a big thing. Yeah, uh, we started running the, I mean, the great thing about being able to sell products and especially doing it in e-commerce is that it's not very time consuming. So it's a project that we were pretty much just running at night until we got it up and going. Um, you, know, you get out from work, you wake up in the morning, check to see if there's any customer messages. If not, check in the afternoon, see if there's any customer messages. And then from there, just keep rolling. So it wasn't something that was extremely time consuming at the time. Uh, we continued to work in our normal jobs from there. And uh, when we started making the shift to a marketing agency uh, is really when we started looking at, all right, now it's time to quit our jobs because we need more time uh, to move down that way. So, and it happened in phases. One partner quit first, then me and then the other partner. And it happened over time. So while we were running the, the product business, the art supply brand, we were just doing that while we had nine to five jobs. That's cool that, uh, you know, that takes a lot of trust in your fellow partner when two of you say, we're going to keep working, but Bob, you go ahead and just quit and you can start doing that full time. And, and we got your back. And just knowing that he or she was like, yeah, I know it. I got this and I can't wait to get you guys over. Cause I know you got my back and you're coming to do that. That, that took a lot of a moxie to do that. I would think. It really depends on who your partners are and how well you trust them and how much they're going to actually be invested in the project. Uh, we had another partner that actually wasn't as committed and we ended up cutting him out uh, after a while because we were putting in all our effort, all our time outside of what we were doing in our normal work. And we didn't feel the same commitment or see the same commitment from him. So I think that's a really good point in that we had a, a solid group of the three of us that we thought could do this together. Uh, we had other people we were working at the time that we didn't have trust in and we just had to kind of cut ties with them and then focus on the core group going forward. It's, it's, um, you know, part, it's hard enough on your own with partners or such a different dynamic. It's that's even, you know, expert level to deal with that. But ultimately I guess everybody knew the role. Everybody knew it was expected of them and everybody was trying to overachieve a little bit to have their relevance and, and make sure they're doing their part and I suspect that is continuing today. I mean, you, nobody can take their foot off the gas, I would imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, in any business, I, I don't think it's a good idea to take the foot off the gas. I think you should keep pushing forward as much as you can. Uh, and that's been the reason why the partnership has worked out so well. And while we've started some of these other businesses, is because we have known that we can trust each other to keep things moving forward. Even when things get hard, when things get uh, when things change, when we're not certain what exactly we need to do, uh, we know that we'll figure it out because we've been through it before and we'll keep pushing that way. So, so this is your attack lacrosse mentality kicking in. Now the other two partners, were they athletes or were they came from a different background? Cause this sounds like a lot like a unit, you know, a team unit concept. Yeah. Are these guys athletes as well? Yes. Uh, I have five partners across all the businesses, uh, part, different partners in different businesses, but, uh, Four of us all played sports in college and one was in the Royal Marines uh, in, in the UK. So, I mean, that kind of There's no discipline in that. I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to wear that hat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So uh, we had two lacrosse players, one hockey player and one uh, soccer player and then one Royal Marine. So scrappy mix of everything. Scrappy. Yeah. Well, that, that explains it. And so entrepreneurs out there, you know, having, and that's one of our big things we talk about is 
having the team around you? Like when do you put that together and how do you navigate that and how do you assign those roles and, and who does what? And that's a very hard thing to, to navigate. But if you're used to that environment as a college athlete and are in the Marines, I, I think you can fall into that pretty easy. Is that what you kind of found out real quick? For working a team, yeah, it's pretty easy that way. I would say one of the challenges, though, that I definitely had was uh, coming from such a long time of working in a team. It was hard for, I mean, now I'm the CEO, but it was hard for someone to kind of take the lead. You know, we were working as a team in whatever aspects we were doing in the past, but none of us were really, you know, captains or leaders. It was just, we had the experience working within the team. So it's like, who's taking the step forward? Who's leading us in the right direction? Uh, who's taking the responsibility? And that was something that I think inhibited us a little bit while we were getting started or took us a little bit longer to really see the success until some people really started stepping up and, you know, the specific areas that they were managing and taking more responsibility on. Because when you come from that team environment, if you're not at 100%, there's always other people there that will step up and you know take the lead or make up for where you're lacking. And when you're in the entrepreneurship world, there is you have to be at 100% all the time or the business is just not going to work out. And that definitely took a little bit of time of adjusting from that mentality. But at the same time, you know, working as a team and being able to handle different responsibilities and step up in different areas actually helped us grow, fa uh, grow faster. So I just want to go back and I, Glenn wants to talk about the team and that's great. No. I just, I want to know how you guys pivoted from selling art supplies to <laughs> let's do a marketing company. Like yeah. what did that look like? I mean, there had to be something that triggered that. So the first, this is kind of where, where I mentioned we had a, uh, another partner that we kind of cut out. He was a partner in that product business. And uh, we were getting to the point where we were kind of getting fed up with that. We were having the issues with the, the manufacturer in China at this point. We had another brand, which was like outdoor, uh, outdoor sports products. We had like umbrellas, uh, swim gear, things like that. And that, it, that brand wasn't as successful. So we started looking at what had made us successful to begin with. And it was the fact that we could really sell uh, or market or advertise our products on the platform. And going back to the art supply brand, we realized that that's kind of where we had the breakthrough that like, oh, we're competing against Crayola. And we were competing against Crayola and we were beating Crayola in categories. And that's where it started realizing that uh, these big companies don't know what they're doing on the Amazon platform. And we started shifting our plan to cut out this other partner, uh, move into the agency world or the marketing world, uh, using our strengths as sales, marketing, advertising, and reaching out to these companies and figuring out if they needed help on the Amazon platform, which most of them did. Uh, that time, like no one really knew what they were doing. And that was kind of the breakthrough. It was, um, let's take our strengths, which is this side. Let's find people that need it, which are these companies, and let's grow it that way. What was your first big company that you got? If you're allowed the to say, I don't know. I mean, we, we're not working with them anymore, but the first big company we had was uh, Rembrandt Teeth Whitening um, and Plackers. They're, it's the same company, but those are the two brands we were managing. So, like, you know, it, it is almost impossible to crack into a big company to get your RFPs, to get everything in and then be on their list and get set. Like, you got to jump through a lot of hoops. How, again, I'm just fascinated. How, how does one go about going, oh, I'm going to go tell a multi-billion dollar international company how to do this thing better because they can't possibly know how to do it, but I know how to do it. And I'm going to get in there. How does one say, yeah, I can do this. And who do you even talk to? Not to mention you're 25 right. years old. Yeah, that's a, that's a small detail, but um, the world was different back then. Uh, we, we, we timed it really well and we had a lot of luck getting into it. At the time, there were not many companies that were focused on the Amazon platform or focused on helping brands on the Amazon platform. So we actually got these jobs from Upwork. Uh, there were companies, multi-billion dollar companies on Upwork looking for help with managing Amazon because they had all of these third-party sellers that were building all these disruptor brands and taking their market set, uh, share on the Amazon platform. And they were like, I need to figure out how to do this. And I guess the only way that they could find it was by going to those platforms because, like I said, there weren't companies out there at the time. Uh, so it was really luck. Uh, we found we connected with a marketing and sales executive uh, who had experience working with a lot of these companies, uh, a lot of these multi-billion dollar companies. 
and he didn't know what he was doing on Amazon, but he was selling Amazon services. So from there, uh, he kind of just white labeled all the work to us. We did all the work and that's really where it started from. And, and then from there, we kind of got more experience on how to deal with these companies and, and started reaching out to other companies and, and started acquiring uh, more clients that way. Now you say it's luck. I had a professor and I know that's a long time ago for me to think that I can remember that, but it was very impactful. And he always said there, there's no luck. It's when preparation meets opportunity. And I, exactly. I definitely think you guys had prepared for that moment. And that opportunity led you to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. I have a similar quote that I really enjoy. And it's, I find the harder that I work, the luckier I get. And it is preparation. We we learned all of our skills by doing it ourselves. And we were in a position at the time, because we knew there weren't many other companies out there, where we were one of the only companies that had these skills that, was in, that were going to be in demand. And we saw that e-commerce kept growing and growing. So you're right. It wasn't luck in the sense of that this just stumbled upon us. It was mm -hmm. luck in the sense that we had positioned ourselves to be in the right place at the right time when these companies needed it. And then we just happened to have them reach out to us. Is there any truth to the rumor that you guys invented the uh, crayon sharpener that was on the 64 pack for Crayola? Is that how you got in the door with that? No, unfortunately not. I, I would uh, like to take credit for that, but that would have been it awesome. Was not us. That would have been <laughs> awesome. Um, do you have, uh, you know, like now is it a situation where you're established, you're doing what you do? Do you have like a dream client where you're like looking across the multi-platforms, all these different companies and going, man, if they would, if I could just get in with that company, I could make them gajillions. Uh, do you have like, you don't have to say their name, but do you have somebody like that, that you're, you really want to go after and get? I mean, from a, a profile standpoint, we've kind of learned who we enjoy working with and who we don't enjoy working with. When you get to these multi-billion dollar companies, it's actually really a pain to work with them because there's so many stakeholders and decision makers um, that it leads to either things getting delayed, pushed back, or <laughs> I remember I just remembered a call that we had one time. We jumped on a call uh, with one of these companies and one of the stakeholders goes, whoa, 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 who are these guys? And we were like, we're the agency you hired. Like, what, what do you mean? So they ended the call, canceled it there. And it was just, we lost our time on that. We ended up continuing to work with them, but it was like one of those frustrating things. It's like, if you guys aren't aware of what's going on within your own business and you're a billion dollar corporation, like why, why would we want to deal with that? Or why would we want to work with that? So for us, ideally the companies that we enjoy working with the most are doing about a million dollars on Amazon or a million dollars online. And they're trying to get to, you know, eight figures going over 10 million, 50 million, wherever it may be, because those are the ones where we see the most engagement in the process and in the growth of the brand online, and they're the most invested in it. And there's not, you know, a ton of people tripping over themselves trying to get, uh, you know, their word across or their point across at every meeting. Julian, we laugh about this all the time. You know, her background is more like corporate America, where you got to go through committees and all this stuff. You talk to an entrepreneur, we're like, you want to do this? Yeah, let's do it. Start right now. And people are like, how can you move that fast? Well, that's how entrepreneurs <laughs> roll, right? And small businesses. And then at some point, the, it, it inverts where they get so big that they have to go mega corp, which is just, it sucks, right? Like you used to be this nimble, you know, lean, mean fighting machine. And next thing you know, you're bogged down with all the, 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 the bureaucracy. How, how do you help these companies that you grow from a million to a 10 or 50 million company? How do you help them navigate that? Or is that not your problem? You're just helping them sell their operations. That's their problem. Yeah. I mean, we make, we'll make recommendations and we have a lot of partners that will refer to them if they need specific help with managing those aspects of growth. But we mainly just stick to the online sales channels. Uh, that's where our strength is. That's where our skills are. I mean, we have obviously our own skills building our own businesses, but a lot of times uh, we don't want to cross that line uh, of making recommendations that we're not hired to make recommendations on. Uh, so we generally just stick to what we know and what our sweet spot is. So if you're sitting there looking at this and you're like, I've done this 5,000 times. These guys are going right down this path. They're going to self-destruct. They just need these couple little things. Is that a different type of business that you have where you'll try to step in and say, hey, guys, hold my beer. I got this. I'll show you how to do this. Or do you guys just let it happen? I mean, when you see that, you know what's going to happen. You've seen it. Do you just yeah, let yeah. it happen or do you try to go, hey, time out. Can I get in there and help you a little bit? Or is that just not you at your core businesses? He's, he stays what? in his lane. I know. I'm just trying to see. <laughs> There's Entrepreneurs always have a different angle. That's the key, right? There's always the next thing. No, I mean, I, we definitely want to stay in our lane. If we see something that 
is coming that's like catastrophic or something that we think uh, or that we've seen before that could lead to significant problems, we will bring it up and say like, hey, we've dealt with this before. We've seen this before. You may want to consider this or talking to this person or whatever. We're not going to make a, you know, a hard step in there and be like, hey, like hire us for your operations consulting now. Like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, we focus on our area. We make recommendations where we can to help them improve. And a lot of times the recommendations we make help the companies grow significantly more. So uh, I think that's that's kind of the way that we approach those conversations and those situations that we encounter. So we like to talk about, you know, an entrepreneur, there's always these peaks and valleys. And you've alluded that you've been through a lot of them. As you've gone through them, do you believe that your valleys have essentially led to your peaks and that you actually are maybe more of a fan of your valley than your peaks? In regards to just, you know, self-development, personal awareness, where you are today, how it led you down that path? That's that's a very good question. Um, I think and there, there's another saying, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it because I don't know. That's okay. The word for We're word. Good. But uh, it's something like hard times uh, make like strong man or whatever it is. Uh, good times make weak men, whatever, like whatever, however it goes. Yeah. Just like that. I, I know what you're saying. That's yeah. it. That's the one. That's it. Okay. Yep. All right. I was close. Yeah. Uh, then uh, I think that makes a lot of, uh, a lot of sense in, in the example you just gave when things aren't going well in the business, you really got to dive in, figure out what's going on. And that's led to a lot of breakthroughs within the business on how we can uh, evolve as an organization or evolve our structure to handle clients better, provide better service, become more operationally efficient. Uh, so I would say that the valleys definitely help to make changes within the business and force ourselves to learn more and to grow more as as leaders. Uh, but I, I don't like them. <laughs> They're not enjoyable. Uh, when you have, for example, we had one that was super frustrating, which was COVID. Uh, the pandemic started and we went from you know, March to April losing like 60% of our revenue because companies were panicking and they didn't know what was going on. Uh, most of those clients ended up coming back, but that was a valley that you can't account for. And it wasn't fun. It was painful. It hurt. It required us to make a lot of changes within the business, which made us more financially sound. Uh, we had to let some people go. We had to change the way that we were paying some people or the payment structures we had in place. Uh, which made the company more sustainable in the long run. But yeah, it definitely was not fun going through those. No, that's when you see, that's the kind of moxie you have when you got to go through something like that. And again, the people that I wouldn't, I don't want to use this term lightly, but when they embraced the challenge and okay, we got to figure this out instead of panic and shut down and go into fear mode, you know, they went the other way, which it sounds like you did. And I think that's one of the things where like, you know, we always like, what's the biggest fear? Not fear like I'm, you're scared, but the biggest, like biggest uncertainty that you're like, it's just lurking there, just sitting in the corner and you guy, I got to attack this thing someday. And then finally you go attacking like, well, that wasn't so bad. Did you have, uh, uh, obviously you probably had a thousand of those, but is there one that stood and stands out most that like, I can't believe I made such a big deal out of nothing. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm also a big fan of Ryan holiday, the obstacles away. And I think that's a really good way to approach problems in most most of the problems that you're gonna have in any business the the biggest problem you have is probably the problem you need to tackle the most and we've come across a lot of those uh one of the big ones was kind of changing the structure of the business or the operations of the business originally we were a consulting agency more or less where the consultants were doing the work and we realized that that was only scalable to a certain point because consultants only have so much time so we had to start figuring out how do we increase their bandwidth or increase their time. And from there is where we started building out our operations more and tackling that problem of, all right, the problem is our consultants are constrained on the amount of clients they can handle. How do we solve this? We started figuring out that if we outsource some of the lower value tasks they're doing and just keep them focused on the higher value tasks, uh, they'll be able to start handling more clients, be able to spend their time on what's driving more revenue for the business. And then the things that need to be done in the background, we can hire other people for them. So uh, that's an example uh, of mm -hmm. a big problem that we had to solve. But in general, I think that's a really good way to uh, approach solving problems in businesses, like figure out what the, the biggest obstacle you have is and then go out and tackle it. Have any obstacles or valleys brought on new businesses for you or new opportunities? Um, yeah, I mean 
definitely uh, it's not like completely related but uh you mentioned one of my businesses magnified uh that business came during the covid pandemic uh because my one of my other partners met the the royal marine uh that we're partners with now during uh the pandemic when they were trapped in the same apartment building in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. So they were living together. That was one example. That was a valley not related to business that we ended up with a new business from. Um and some of the other ones, uh we had another partner that was actually working in China at the time uh of COVID. He left right before the uh, the pandemic broke out because he knew it was coming uh or he knew it was going to shut down and be like crazy restrained, uh, restrained. He came to Mexico and he ended up actually starting an entire new service uh, within our company uh, where he helps brands expand to, from the U.S. to Europe, Europe to the U.S. and, and so on and so forth. Um, so because of changes in the business or values in the business, there were other opportunities that came up, not necessarily related to the business themselves, but a lot of the externalities that the business was faced with. And how did you end up in Mexico? <laughs> Um, so this is, uh, kind of when we were starting AMZ advisors, the, the main agency that I run, uh, we were, we had our money saved up from what we had been selling. We had our money saved up from when we were working. We didn't know how long it would take to get to the point where the business would be paying ourselves. So the initial idea was let's make the money last as long as possible. And how do we make the money last as long as possible? Well, let's, let's move to Mexico. Launder the uh, money in Mexico. I like it. I yeah. So I wish I wish different... I would I wish I would have been at that dinner table. Well, that's a whole nother discussion. Right? People don't do this. Yeah, we definitely didn't do that one uh, on video or recording. There's no evidence or anything. But um, no, I mean we're all from Connecticut. Myself and all well, four of my partners, one's from the UK, uh, and we didn't like the winter either. I mean we've we've grown up there our entire lives. We like warm weather. Um, Mexico is cheap. The weather was was great. It would give us enough time to make our money last to get the business up and running. And that's kind of how I ended up here to begin with. After living in Playa del Carmen for a few months, I wanted to go travel. I ended up coming to Guadalajara, which is where I live, live now. And I met my uh, now wife in Guadalajara. She's from here. And ever since then, I've, I've just been been here building the teams. Uh, we're in our office right now. And yeah, it's just been growing ever since. So did everybody stay? No one moved back? One of my other partners is also dating a uh, Mexican and they live in Mexico City. Uh, my other partner lives in Connecticut and my other partner who handles the global expansion side lives in Europe because his girlfriend is Portuguese. So, you know, here we are. I'm trying to figure out who's giving you advice that thinks that e-commerce in Latin America is a good idea. <laughs> I'm totally messing with you. No, like... Again, you're you're here. You're tapping in the market. You asked, and you're like, there's a tremendous opportunity. Easy cost to eggs enter, low cost to operate, and just nothing but upside. I mean, how long did it take you to say that's where I need to be? Is that I mean, was it happen the same time you wanted to move there, or you like that's where it's going? I need to get there on the ground to do it there. No, uh, I wouldn't say it didn't start with that idea. It kind of just grew over time. Um, the main idea was just make money last as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of just came around that there's a lot of opportunity to grow e-commerce businesses here. Um, one of the interesting things or one of the coolest things that we found was there weren't any companies doing what we were doing in Mexico or in Latin America in general. Um, and that's really, there were a lot of people that were interested, a lot of employees, I mean, that were interested in it and kind of working in the industry, but there were no opportunities for them. So once we started hiring down here and creating those opportunities, we were able to acquire a lot of really, really good talent that were interested in the space, that were doing some aspects of e-commerce themselves, but wanted a, a full-time job doing it. And from that standpoint, it just it just kind of continued to grow and that we were able to find better and better people. Is this still with the Amazon platform or is this something different for the e-commerce? Yeah, so it's with Amazon and other mm -hmm. platforms. I mean, okay. in Latin America, we have uh, Mercado Libre, uh, we have Amazon, we have Walmart. So those are, are the big platforms. Um, we do work with some clients in other countries like Brazil as well, where you have a whole different range of of, uh, of platforms. You have Casa Bahia, uh, Lojas Americana, and then Amazon. Those are the three biggest. Mercado Libre, actually, as well. I forgot that one. So um, there's a whole different variety of platforms we're, we're dealing with and we're, you know, continuing to learn about. 
When did you uh, decide to learn Spanish? <laughs> I I don't know that he had a choice. Yeah, at I mean, some I point, like at some point, you're like, okay, I'm over here. I got to figure out how to speak this, right? It, so, I I always took Spanish growing up in okay. school. Uh, my mom's family is, or you know, my family's Portuguese, so it's similar. Oh, it's easy, um, it wasn't easy, but well, Portuguese, when I came to Mexico, yeah, Portuguese is the hardest language to learn, right? So everything else after that is cake. That's what I hear yeah. anyway. Eh, well, I don't know, but when I when I got to Mexico, I, I had a really easy time understanding everybody. Um, I had a harder time speaking and communicating back to them, but I could understand what they were saying to me. So it just became a matter of time of listening, learning. I took some classes, which helped you know speed up the growth a lot, and then from there, I was able to to really you know pick up the language and become fully fluent in it pretty fast. So I always like to ask this question: What is your superpower? Um, oh, that's a good one. Uh, I think right now, and this is one of the changes that we've made over the past few months, uh, is, is kind of, uh, leadership and, and driving the business forward. Um, and it's, it's a little weird to say that, which is why I, I kind of hesitate there, but it's not weird. The company, <laughs> well, it sounds weird to me at least, but the company, um, the company was in a position where it really needed someone to start driving it forward, really start getting everyone to buy in and and start working together to keep pushing things forward. We had been making a lot of progress, but we were getting to points where we were, we were kind of plateauing and there was no real disruption, no real changes within the business to keep things moving forward. And I think that's probably where my strength uh, or my superpower uh, came in and that I was able to start I got more comfortable with taking more of a leadership role and I was able to start getting the teams to work together in a new direction and start moving forward. And I think getting that momentum moving forward has put us in a much different position from where we were even six months ago. And I, and right now for me, that that's the one that sticks out the most is getting teams to work together, buy in, uh, continue to make progress, planning on how we're going to move forward and then getting everyone to move in that direction. Have you uh, watched that Netflix series, The Swamp Kings? <laughs> uh, what, uh, you know, with the, it's the Florida Gators and it's ultimately to build a championship team. Ultimately you have to have leadership step up inside the team to lead everybody and, and again, get their buy-in. Correct. Right. But, but, but to your point, like you were just like a part of, you were never a leader. And then all of a sudden you found your superpower and now you're a natural leader. Who knew? Right. Uh, well yeah. done. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, thank you. And I mean, uh, there's always those opportunities to step up and lead. It was really just more of a point of getting more comfortable, kind of mm -hmm. going back to what I said earlier, working in that team environment in the past, I never had to be the leader. I was contributing, I was doing my part, but now is the point where someone that was more comfortable with uncertainty, more comfortable with taking control, uh, had to step up. And that's kind of just what I did. Well, look at you. So one, one last question, and it's kind of a loaded <laughs> one, but what is your end game? <laughs> that is a that is a loaded question. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, from my standpoint, what I really enjoy about entrepreneurship and business in general is just growing businesses and building them. Uh, as you can see, I have multiple businesses that are running, multiple businesses that I'm trying to grow. We were just talking yesterday about starting a new business. Um, I don't see myself ever kind of moving out of the entrepreneurship game. It'll really just evolve into how big I want to build something or how big I can build something. Um, whether that ends with, you know, exits or, or putting employees in place to run certain businesses while I focus on other areas, I'm not sure. But uh, I do see a lot of opportunity in e-commerce. I do see a lot of opportunity in Latin America. I imagine that I will probably continue to build businesses here in Latin America uh, or businesses here that serve companies in the U.S., um, in some aspects. So I, I imagine I'll just continue to grow things, continue to continue to build businesses over time. So not only was it a loaded question, but it was a trick question because there is no end game for you. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to happen. Uh, unfortunately, no. uh, I like the, I like the thrill too much. That, that's really what it comes down to. You, you know, too much. And when you know too much, how can you possibly walk away? I mean, it, yeah. it sucks you right back in. And now you're in a position where you said when you're building the team down in, in Mexico, like you're creating so many opportunities for people that they didn't have a day ago. And now they're going to be part of something that's way bigger than even they could imagine. And you're impacting lives. You're helping people buy things for better prices or more, more better products, 
better people working. Like you're, you're impacting everyone. And that's a pretty cool feeling. And most people don't get to really get to do that. So, I mean, congrats on that. So that's, there can't be an end game. You got to keep doing what you do because you love it too much. We're not letting you off the hook no. is what he's saying. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Well, I tell you, it, it was an, a joy having you on with us today, Mike. And I don't know if you want to put a little plug in on your businesses if people want to find you. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we'd Are love to hear Are you going to write a book or have you written a book? I've not written a book. Uh, I've thought about it. I just feel like I don't have the time to sit down and, and commit to it. Um, I need to force myself to start writing. But um, can you just you can these days you just talk into something and someone writes it for yeah, you. Right? You have memoirs, don't you? You have all that stuff down somewhere. Yeah, I need to. I need to really start doing more of that. You guys are just reminding me now of, Sorry. of other things I got to put on Another my plate. Another thing. But uh, well, the, the, <laughs> we just want to make sure you don't have an end game. That's it. The the ADD <laughs> is force is strong with all of us, so it's it's a natural thing. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I could talk about my businesses for a while. I'll keep it short though. Uh, AMZ Advisors, uh, amzadvisors.com. We help brands uh, grow their sales, accelerate their sales on the Amazon platform or launch on Amazon. Magnified.io, that business helps coaches and service providers with outsourced sales. If you're looking to uh, close more deals, you should talk to us. We will be able to help. And then GoAvance, G-O-A-V-A-N-C-E.com. That business is helping brands from the US, Canada, and Europe break into the Latin American markets. So if you're looking, if you are a brand owner, if you're looking to expand, you should contact us there. Fantastic. Well, definitely a pleasure having you on the show. We learned a lot, and uh, I think our listeners are going to get a lot of good nuggets out of this I, one. I hope we can have you back in a year and know where you are and what you're doing and what other opportunities you've seized. He's, I, I would be happy to come back anytime and talk. Uh, I love kind of chatting about these things, my experience and my views. And, you know, hopefully a year from now, things will be in a much different position. Yeah. You're going to have a villa somewhere on the coast and we'll come and do it live. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it live in Tulum next time. That's it. There you <laughs> there go. I go. love Tulum. We get you're going to gonna be launching your book by this time next year. I just, I just have this feeling. Yeah. We'll be sitting in a Sonotos hanging out. It'll be great. All right. Well, Mike, thanks again for being on the show. And uh, Julie, another good one. Yes. We'll talk to y'all later. This is Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. At Harper & Company CPA Plus, we just don't care about the numbers. We care about helping you tap into the greatness of your entrepreneurial journey. You deserve a partner who has helped hundreds of businesses go from paying the bills to building the business and lifestyle of their dreams. Go to our website and download our free guide entitled Entrepreneurial Success Formula, How to Avoid Managing Your Business from Your Bank Account. The link is in this episode's show notes.